News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And indeed, we shall be giving you that with our guest co-host tonight, Magnus Haystack. We also have Pitfull Yun, who is our other guest co-host, but he's coming to talk to us tonight about a, well, a, a deal that Naspers has done. Three years ago, they sold 2% of their shareholding in Tencent, and they got $10.5 billion. They've just decided to sell another 2%, because they can only do it every three years, and at this time, they're banking 15 billion dollars. Also tonight we're going to talk about the demise, value destruction par excellence of Petrolion. Do you do, take a flyer at what's been the biggest value destruction um, in recent times? Three billion rand market cap five years ago. Today, Nux. Um, oof, there's, there's been a few like <laughs> or, well, I, I, I'll tell you the, the guest tonight is Giron Novik so that should be a clue okay well that's Kome then isn't it Kome what a disaster we will be talking to Giron about that he left Kome long ago uh, his family hopefully sold all their shares because they were Kome shareholders a long time ago but we will be talking to him about that spectacular destruction of value. And then Grant Patterson. You must remember him, Magnus. He was uh, the enfant terrible at, I hope I spelled that, can uh, pronounce that correctly, at MassMart, 36 years old when he took over as CEO there, went on to be CEO of Edcon, and he's now got a new job. It'll be interesting to see what he's done. He's, been, uh, he's had a fantastic career, ups and downs in his life. Extraordinary story that uh, of his career, as you say, Grant Patterson. So we'll be talking to Grant about his new job. And then a really big story coming from the Cape where PLET ratepayers are taking the municipality to the constitutional court. And this after the manager of that municipality was found to be guilty of financial misdeeds, misappropriation, and the municipality or the council just overruled the fact that he should have been fired and reappointed him. So the ratepayers are now taking all of that to the Concord. It's uh, lots of interesting stuff coming up on our Business Power Hour tonight. But first, let's get the news headlines. Here's our Melanie Nathan. Process has announced its intention to sell up to 191 million shares in Tencent Holdings Limited, reducing its stake to 28.9%. The company intends to use the proceeds to increase its financial flexibility and invest in growth. Process has committed to not sell any more shares in Tencent for at least three years. In a statement, Process Chair Chris Becker said, Tencent is one of the world's best growth enterprises. It has consistently delivered value since listing in 2004. Process commitment to Tencent remains steadfast. The International Monetary Fund has revised its global growth expectation upwards for both this year and 2022. The 2021 GDP growth estimate is higher at 6%, while the estimate for next year has been increased to over 4%. The positivity is due to faster-than-expected growth in developed economies. The IMF's growth estimate for almost all other countries, including South Africa, has also been revised higher, suggesting that the global economy is adapting to the impact of COVID-19. In terms of the risks to the growth outlook, the biggest concern is the speed of vaccine distribution. Much still depends on the race between the virus and vaccines, writes Kevin Lings, chief economist at Stanlib. Meanwhile, a business confidence index compiled by the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry fell in March. While the index average improved in the six months through March compared to the preceding six months, it's important for authorities to address policy certainty, structural impediments and low investment ratings that are still preventing the economy from breaking through the current impasse, Saki said. Further afield, Norway's $1.3 trillion wealth fund has made its first investment in clean energy infrastructure. The world's biggest sovereign investment vehicle has agreed to buy half of the Bruxelles 1 and 2 offshore wind farm from Orsted of Denmark. The deal is worth just under 1.4 billion euros. 
This is the first time the fund has tapped into $14 billion set aside for renewable energy acquisitions. Norway's Wealth Fund will become a joint partner in generating enough energy annually to power roughly a million households in the Netherlands. I'm Melanie Nathan and that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, the headline story is that $15 billion share sale by Process and Naspers. Justin Rowe Roberts watches the markets. I'm sure you've been watching those two stocks today. Very interesting day, Alec. The JSE All Share Index was down to 67,300. The major highlight of the day was Process announcement to sell 2% stake in Tencent, disposing of 190 million shares, with the proceeds, proceeds amounting to approximately 210 billion, the same size of South Africa's second largest lender, Standard Bank. Naspers was down 180 rand to 3,480 rand a share. Just slow down a little bit there. So in other words, what they're going to get from the sale of 2% of a company that they bought for just 32 million in 2001 is the same size as Standard Bank, the same market cap as Standard Bank. And double the size of APSA. Wow, jeepers. So two APSAs. Mm, okay, well done, nice pass. It just shows you how enormous uh, that bet or enormously successful that bet was. Kudos, Chris Becker. Indeed. Process was down 70 rand to 1,600 rand a share on the back of the announcement. The Purple Group, the holding company of Easy Equities, was up 10% to 1 rand 12 cents a share on the back of an upbeat trading statement. The company's results are due Friday. Sunlam was the biggest loser on the top 40 today, slipping 6% to 56 rand a share. Some interesting moves in the currency markets today, with the rand flat against the dollar at 14 rand 52 cents, stronger against the sterling at 20 rand, and weaker against the euro at 17 rand 28 cents. Gold is flat at $1,738 an ounce. Brent crude is trading at $62.20 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you 825,000 rand a Bitcoin. Magnus Haystick is uh, looking on as our guest market commentator this evening. And no doubt, <coughs> thinking about your, all those NASPAS shares that you own and why would the share price go down? Um, Pete's going to tell us in a moment why, after such good news, or apparently, the share price fell. But are you a, are you a holder of NASPAS directly or NASPAS stroke process? Marcus? Indirectly, I hold you know, some of our funds. We do have them. You have to have them as a South African investor. Not directly. Unfortunately, I used to work for NASPAS. And I should have done what Chris Becker did in those days. He said, don't pay me a salary. Pay me in shares. And he's never earned a salary since he started at uh, NASPAS. Uh, we were there at the same time when we saw this bright young man strutting up and down the corridor, and he was the talk of everybody. He just come back from Columbus uh, University or Columbia University with a master's degree in communication, and he was talking stuff that we, you know, you know, hard print uh, journalists. We didn't know what he was talking about, but nevertheless, long story short, he went into uh, uh, direct cable TV, and 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 all that followed. After that, and then, of course, that big investment, one of the biggest private equity deals ever in the history of stock markets, $32 million. And what is it now? $240 billion. I mean, every South African pensioner, a member of an investment fund, doesn't matter what, what you invest in South Africa, owe a special uh, deed, of, a deed of gratitude towards Chris Becker because 25% of our market, Without an Aspas deal, we would have had a very, very smaller pension today uh, as, as a consequence of that. It's a very good way of putting it. Uh, also, he could use his chump change to create Babalongstorang, one of our premier wine estates. Pitfilion, this deal today really puts it in perspective, doesn't it? When, uh, as Justin said, so they're going from 31% down to 29%, and that the money they're raising... Oh, that's ownership of Tencent, is worth the same as all of Standard Bank. Quite extraordinary. Yeah, I think that puts the, the investment to perspective. And of course, it's done a, a huge investment. I mean, it's, it's a world-class, it's one of the, I think, the top 10 investment outcomes ever in the world um, by uh, a South African. So I think kudos to him, kudos to NASPAS, have done very, very well. 
What about the sale today? It's a, it's exact. It's not exactly. It's three years and two weeks since they first started selling their ten cent shares. That was in on the twenty second of March, twenty eighteen. They sold two percent. They got about ten billion, ten and a half billion dollars at that time. Now they're getting fifteen billion this time around. So it shows what the share price has done. But at that time, they said they wouldn't sell any more shares for three years. So three years, two weeks later, they're selling another. Two percent. Uh, can we kind of write it in now that uh, Naspers will be every three years will be selling two percent of its holding? I hope not. If if I was a Naspers shareholder, which, which I'm not, uh, but if I was one, um, then I would be quite upset because they're selling probably one of the best companies in the world um, and investing it into who knows what uh, food delivery and other things, which are, are just not the same quality uh, businesses. And that's what the market is saying by putting this big discount, because everybody's talking about the big discount on Aspas to its underlying holding in Tencent. I think it's something in the order of 50%. Uh, the market is telling Aspas, please stop doing that uh, and rather unbundle Tencent. Give it to us so that we own Tencent directly. But Pete, uh, as a businessman, there is no way if I'd made an investment into another company and it had done very well, that I would give that away to to shareholders. It doesn't matter. You you want to use that that the, the value of that investment to grow your own business. Except the, the what they're selling is doing better than what they're buying. So they are destroying value the whole time. I mean, the two percent they sold three years ago, they sold for ten billion. Now they sold two percent for fifteen billion. They've cost shareholders five billion dollars effectively. If they didn't sell the two percent three years ago, they would have been five billion dollars better off. But and I so, guess, but where did they put that ten billion? That's the question, isn't in, it? In food delivery businesses and other investments, which have not done as well. They have not just not done as well. Uh, and, and by the way, if you own an asset and you unbundle it, you still own the asset. Whether you own it via the holding company or whether you're after, after unbundling, own the holding company plus the unbundled company, you're in exactly the same position as a shareholder. But you need There's the cash. No you need the cash to grow things, to build the business up. And surely that's what they're doing now. Yes, but they, they are selling one of the best businesses in the world to invest into poorer business. And that's the crux of the argument that the market is making. And that's why there's such a big discount on Aspas. And, and they've been planning themselves into not trying to reduce this discount. But everything they're doing is just making the discount bigger and bigger and bigger. And at some point, that message probably needs to hit home. Pete, Pete how do you think the market would have reacted if Naspers and Process came out and said that with the proceeds that they're getting, they're going to give shareholders back via, say, a special dividend? Yeah, I don't understand why you would sell a fantastic asset to pay out a dividend. I mean, you're converting capital into income. It just makes no sense at all. It, you know, it, it, it's value destructive. But, but isn't and, and Bob von Dijk also said in his declaration that they're selling Tencent shares to buy more processed shares. So uh, that underscore what Peter's saying. I mean, maybe there's another reason why they are reducing the Tencent holding. Could it be fears of regulatory intervention by the Chinese government. That might be a factor that we're not, not fully aware of that might still happen. So we don't not know, but it's, 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 it's exciting news on the business scene. Could it be, Pitt, that the, uh, the regulatory changes that we're seeing in China with the Chinese Communist Party getting more of a grip over its major companies, including Tencent, that that might have weighed on this decision? I, I, you know, if you're selling two percent every three years, you're not you. you that train's going to hit you. You're not going to. You're not going to. If there is such a train, I'm not. I don't know if there is one or not, but that train's going to hit you. Um, if you're selling two percent every three years, um, I, you know, I think a much better corporate strategy, from my simple point of view, would be to unbundle tents, and each shareholder can then make up their own mind whether they want to keep it, buy NASPAF, buy food delivery businesses, sell it. You know, they, then then you make up your own mind what you want. But then presumably you're saying that they're not going to hit another home run. They're not going to hit another 10 cent. It's unlikely. I mean, as I said, that is one of the top 10 deals ever in the history of financial markets. You don't do two of those in your lifetime. Fair enough. But now you're also presuming that where they're going to invest the money is not going to perform as well as 10 cent itself into the future. Is that realistic? Well, it hasn't yet. Hasn't yet. It hasn't mm. yet. And I think if one examines the economics of the food delivery business and industry, 
I think it's, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that it's just not as good a business. All right. So when you have a look at this from your perspective, are you saying that the market's done the right thing by knocking back the share price of NASPERS today by 5%? In other words, sending a big thumbs down to yeah. another decision that, uh, that it doesn't like? Yes, I, I, I think the market is generally right. The market is smart. Okay. Uh, Mr. Market is not so smart, but the market generally is. <laughs> you know, Mr. Market can be emotional, but on average it gets it right over time. Or she gets it right over time. What does one do then as a NASPERS shareholder looking at this? Well, you know, uh, you have no influence. You've got no control. Remember, NASPERS are in shares. They're non-voting shares. Um, so you have no influence, no control, and you are beholden to the strategies implemented by head office. Uh, and if you agree with the strategy, then you buy more. You know, if the share price goes down and you think the strategy is a good one, then you buy more. And if you don't, then you sell the shares. Um, I, th- I think that's that's the course of action that each shareholder needs to decide for themselves. But you are the ultimate value investor. And, and why I'm so surprised at this is that if you can get something at 50 cents in the dollar, as uh, Warren Buffett tells us, then you must buy it. But in this case, uh, should you be selling NASPERS shares and putting the money into Tencent, even though NASPERS shares are giving you, to buy Tencent via NASPERS, you're getting it to 50 cents in the dollar? Yeah, but, you, but, they're, selling, but they're selling the 10 cents for you. you know? um, so um, I, th- I think the discount is probably warranted because they're taking a good asset and converting that into either income through special dividends or they're converting into a poorer asset through buying increasing exposure to food delivery food delivery businesses. So they are reducing the value of the underlying holding consistently. Uh, so over time, you'll find that the discount might be warranted, that you know you only really get 50 cents in the round at the end of the day. So if you were advising Bob van Dijk and Chris Becker, who are desperate to close that discount, what would you be saying to them? Unbundle 10 cents and your problems are over. Unbundle 10 cents. Very simple. And what does that mean for people who don't understand the, the intricacies? That means when if you're a NASPAS shareholder today and tomorrow they decide to unbundle Tencent, tomorrow you still own NASPAS shares, which are a mixture of food delivery and other uh, technology businesses, and you own Tencent separately. And then you can decide what you want to do. You're in exactly the same boat. You just own two counters instead of one. And what would that do to the value of your holding in theory? Nothing. Exactly the same. But, but surely, exactly. if you're getting the $0.10 cent shares directly and they, you're getting them at a 50% discount in NASPERS, the, the value of your holding would go up. Yes, so eventually it will go up. Yeah. So on, uh, immediately there will be no change, but I would guess that the discount in NASPERS would, would reduce tremendously uh, and you'd have $0.10 cent outright. So I, I think the return on your investment would go up over time. Well, we know Chris Becker's no mug. Uh, we also know he's not getting any younger. Maybe this is his plan. If he can raise $15 billion now, then unbundle the 10 cent shares to shareholders and everybody benefits. And NASPAS is sitting on, or process is sitting on $15, $15 billion of, uh, of ammo. Look, of course, and, 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 and the people in NASPAS are very smart. I would, I would not underestimate them. Uh, so they probably do have a strategy. Uh, it's just that. If they have a strategy like that, they either can't or won't communicate to the market, and therefore the market is putting this disc, big discount on us. You know, so there's a communications gap. But if they decided tomorrow, and that's really what I'm getting at, if they decided tomorrow to unbundle the shares in Tencent, because they've now got all this, they've got as much ammo as they would possibly need, what would happen then? Uh, to the NASPAS shares. Presumably, it would go up very strongly. The share price would go up. The share price of NASPAS would go up. At that. If that were to happen, if they were to announce overnight the unbundling 10 cents, then the share price of NASPAS would rocket up. Magnus, that surely says uh, that the retirement uh, uh, fund or retirees uh, in South Africa or retirement fund owners given that NASPAS is such a big part of it, should be agitating for something along those grounds. I think, uh, well, first of all, I think Pete's uh, analysis is, is, been very, is very accurate. And it's typical from an, an analyst who, who cuts out the rubbish and gets to the point. Whether you have it in your name or via process, 
you know, if it's in your name, as Pete says, you can decide if you want to sell it or not or keep it. And I think the discount will rapidly close. So there's a big, big unlocking of value that might take place. But, uh, but uh, Alec, you and I know that for how many years have we been discussing this this unlocking of the 10 cent discount and, and, and the NASPAS people, with all due respect to them, have built a solid Chinese wall around, if I may use that expression. They don't communicate very well. They don't send messages. And they basically said, take it or leave it. If you want to, if you don't like our structures, control structures, bugger off, go buy something else. So far, they've been been correct that you're right. There is a big value unlock to be had at some point in time. And who knows? We might still experience to talk about it in one of these days. Uh, I don't think they don't care. I've, I've spent time with, uh, with Bob van Dijk and Basil Skodos, and this occupies their mind continuously, the discount between the two. Maybe, the, maybe there is something going on here. We'll, we, we will only know in time. The next story is uh, the opposite. Uh, we've just heard about the greatest private equity deal probably of all time. Uh, which occurred in, was it 2001, when um, the NASPAS at the time borrowed money to spend $32 million to buy 50% of Tencent. And as we heard earlier, that's been just a great investment. The opposite side of the scale is an airline called Comair. Comair, which manages British Airways, Kalula.com, and was once run by Gidon Novik. Our next guest, Gidon, Gidon, lovely to have you uh, on the program tonight. But it's it's kind of a bittersweet day. Here's a company that your family was heavily invested in that actually helped to grow. And today it's effectively worth nothing. Uh, I look back in 2016, five years ago, uh, it had a 3 billion rand market capitalization. Today, uh, Justin, what's it down? 99, what are they getting? False. Just over four cents. Four cents. So it went from six rand a share in uh, 2016, and shareholders are going to be getting four cents out. Is that right? Exactly. How do you feel about this when looking at it, Gidon? Could it have been avoided? How's it, Alec? Um, Sure, interesting question. I mean, I suppose it's a story of every industry. It goes through cycles and business models change. Um, Myself and my father, as you know, were involved in the business for many years. Um, We left about 10 years ago. Uh, we were both quite happy to be out of the airline industry. Um, and, and the models changed. You know, there's a lot of factors which, you know, I, I think are required for a successful airline today. Um, and one of the big issues, obviously, which ultimately becomes the Achilles heel is an excess of debt um, and, you know, volatility in the market, which, you know, when when the model can't afford to sustain um, the volatility or deal with the volatility, um, the, the debt becomes the killer at the end of the day. How was that debt built up? Well, I mean, the debt uh, in that business um, and in, uh, in many airlines around the world is built up on uh, on aircraft and, you know, a bullish, a bullish view of the future and purchasing new aircraft and, you know, getting the cycle wrong. There's massive cycles in, in this industry. And um, that you know those cycles have a dramatic impact on on the cost of the major asset in the business, which is which is aircraft. Um, interestingly, if you look at what's happened now with COVID, is that aircraft values have uh, come down by about two thirds uh, from about a year ago. So if you think about that from a kind of entry point of view, um, you know if you get in at the wrong time of a cycle, and if you take on debt to finance these uh, expensive fixed assets, um, it's very difficult to recover. Get on, in the United States, there are many more airlines and they seem to have been kept alive by government. In South Africa, we haven't had that kind of support. Well, not generally. I mean, obviously, one airline's been very, very heavily supported um, over the years, you know, to the effect of, I don't know, 30 billion or a, a massive number. Um, that's obviously coming to an end. I think, you know, state subsidies um, in, you know, certainly in this country are not, not affordable going forward. Um, but that's been a big factor. So, you know, it's kind of distorted, I guess, the inherent risks in the industry, particularly, you know, um, which, which become exposed in, in, the, in an environment with excessive debt. 
Pitt, one of your former colleagues from the time when you were at Investec Asset Management, John Bicard, used to love Kame as a great value play. I'm sure he's smart enough to have departed uh, any holding that he had. But was there a time that uh, you would have considered this as a as a good investment? Um, there, there was a time I did look at it, but it's not really an industry that is fundamentally attractive most of the time. Uh, there comes times, you know, the survivors, after a period we've gone through now, the survivors um, offer you a buying opportunity. Unfortunately, Kame wasn't one of the survivors uh, for at least equity holders. Um, but I think globally, if you look around the world right now, then um, some of the airline stocks are actually doing really well, the guys who have been able to survive. Um, so it's a very cyclical business, and if you can get in at the right time, it might make sense to allocate a, a small amount of capital to the industry. But on average over time, it's not an attractive industry for equity owners to be a permanent financier of. So, Giron, what Peter is telling us is that your new airline lift is a is a folly, <laughs> or, or you could have found a better place to put your money. I'm sure you'll disagree. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it it's most certainly is a risky business um, with these massive cycles. I mean, our take on it, uh, or certainly my take on it, after having you know mixed experiences in the industry, is is really to try and build a fundamentally different model. Um, you know, the model can't have a lot of debt. Um, you know, debt, you know, running out of cash ultimately is what kills businesses and excessive debt, um, certainly in the airline industry, is at the core of that. So that can't happen. Um, you know, with demand being so volatile and particularly now with COVID, um, one needs to be so flexible and agile um, in the business model. In other words, um, in our model, in the lift model, we're able to scale up and scale down uh, very, very quickly and very, very easily, um, ensuring that we've always got a, a very low fixed cost base. So I think that's a model that, that is sustainable. I think that's a model that's that's durable over the long term. Magnus, I think globally, that, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Magnus, no, the, wor- the world is changing, isn't it? Uh, when you, you hear what uh, Gidon's saying about various models being brought in in a much more, almost like a gig economy uh, uh, model that, that he's describing there. I've just looked on Wikipedia and, I, and I, there's a list of defunct airlines of South Africa in the last 25 years. And there's about 30 airlines that have gone bang. And I'm talking about one time uh, nationwide, Sun Air, Skyway. I mean, it's just a host of them. And and that's what's so fantastic. And here comes uh, Gidon, who's been in the industry, seen it crash and burn. And he said, but I can do it better. I can do it better next time. There's a newer model. I mean, that's, you need to praise someone like Gidon. That's the spirit of entrepreneurship that we need in this country. He says, yes, 30 guys have, have, have failed, but this time it's going to work. And that's quite fantastic. And good, good luck, Gidon. We're going to watch it. Uh, it is, uh, as you say, a big cycle, especially grand dollar exchange rate, the oil price, the uh, loading, load, load factors and all those things and, and governments and COVID to, to add to that. And you can try and make a business out of that. Well, fantastic. And let's see how much we can support you. Thank you. Let's give your business a lift, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Would you ever list it? Would you ever list it, Giron? Yeah, I think listing's an interesting, um, you know, one. I, d- I, don't, I don't typically get into businesses, you know, to, ex- to exit businesses. I prefer to get in and try and build something um, durable over time. And if there's an exit, that's fantastic. But I think listing is a, is an option in South Africa. I think the industry gets a lot of attention. The industry's, you know, attractive um, you know, to many people. And uh, and I think listing certainly in the, in the commerce scenario for for many years, you know, the the listing was was a successful, um, you know, kind of financial construct for the for the entity. So uh, yeah, we would we would we would be keen. Obviously, only once we've built a, a solid track record to do that. The thing that baffles me is here you've got Comair competing against South African Airways, which is heavily subsidized by the state. So already Comair has got an unlevel playing field. Yet it managed for years and years and years to make a profit, uh, profit and comes uh, the, the departure of you guys, the entry of Bidvest, who are supposed to be very good managers, and it's gone bust. 
Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, you know, I think competing with the state had, uh, there were two sides to the coin. There were, the one was obviously unfair in terms of the, you know, the, the subsidies and the, you know, the commerciality of the business. But on the other hand, it, you know, it's, these businesses are built on culture. They're built on, they're, they're customer service businesses. Um, and they've got to have the right culture. They've got to have people that are motivated, that are inspired, that want every single aircraft to take off on time, that want every customer to have a good experience, want every piece of luggage to land in the, in the right customer's hands. So, so, the, so it's, it's difficult to do that in a bureaucracy. It's difficult to do that without, you know, without the right leadership and without the right um, culture from the start. And it's always easier, I think, to build culture in a new business than it is to uh, do it in an in a old uh, legacy business. But Peter does say something to us about Bidvest post-Brian Joffe. I think it does. Um, uh, I think maybe they uh, got too fancy with the financial structuring there. Um, but I think what Gidon says is spot on. I mean, a, a, a business culture uh, goes a long way to determining the outcome of the business, whichever industry you're in, whether it's a commodified, commodified industry like the airline industry or a, a specialist industry like uh, Tencent. You know? I think culture culture is massive. And I think Gidon has a very good track record of building um, businesses with good culture. So I can only wish him the best and I can assure him that I will be a good client. Well, that's nice you, to Pete. know. Magnus, are you going to be a client as well, given that uh, you've also done that as an entrepreneur? You've built a very sizable business uh, from scratch, second time round. Of course, we'd like to support Gidon. We've known each other for a very long time and, and in his previous businesses, I think you, you meant to mention that he uh, started the Discovery Vitality for, for Adrian Gore and a huge success there as well. And then moving on to, on to Section 12J companies, we'd love to support an entrepreneur. It's a spirit that we, we sorely lack in this country. We've got too many civil servants running the country. We need entrepreneurs to run the country. You know, it reminds me of a speech. I was in, I was in San Francisco. I think it was at a Google function. And one of the main speakers to talk about their new venture got up and proudly said, you know, I've gone bankrupt four times, but the next company I is going to be the big one. And, and we need that culture in South Africa. In South Africa, we, we don't support our failed businessmen as much as we should. I like it very much. Well, thanks, Gidon, for uh, gracing us today. Before we leave, what happens, Justin, to the shareholders now? So it's becoming an unlisted, unlisted entity from today. And, um, yeah, the, the equity holders are getting four cents a share. I'm not too sure when that payout will come, um, but four cents. If uh, they want four cents. Exactly. Otherwise, they just get stuck in an unlisted company, which they can't trade, presumably. For sure. Horrible end. Uh, Pitt? You said earlier when we started uh, that this isn't the only destruction of value, but it's got to be right up there in percentage terms. Yeah, in percentage terms, you know, if you go from uh, three billion to just about nothing, that's uh, that's almost one hundred percent. You can't do much worse than that. <laughs> well, good to have you on the program, get on, um, Pitt. Thanks for joining us as well. We're going to take a a, a little sidestep now by uh, listening to our colleague. Jared Neves, who actually looked at a car that I don't think any of you well-heeled gentlemen would be buying, but certainly it's one of the most popular cars in South Africa. Uh, Let's hear what Jared and Jackie had to say about the VW Polo. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. With me is Jared Neves, motoring journalist for BizNews. Jared, today we're talking about the Volkswagen Polo Vivo. Is this a popular car? Yes, it's actually South Africa's best-selling car, and it has been for a number of years. Well, one of South Africa's best-selling cars. The Polo Vivo enjoys great popularity with local consumers. Why is that, do you think? Well, uh, plenty of reasons. I think number one, obviously, is VW enjoys a great reputation in South Africa. It's almost seen as a desirable brand in South Africa, especially with younger people. Then, of course, their the reputation for durability and reliability and excellent build quality, which even this, this Polar Viva, which is their budget offering, has a beautifully built interior. This really feels like a quality car. The Vivo, of course, starting at 218000 I think, around there at least. The Vivo, it offers really good value and it's just a practical, sensible car that appeals to a lot of people on various levels. 
I used to really aspire to owning a VW. And my first new car that I bought was a VW. And three days after I bought it, brand new car, packed up. And I called VW and I said, I've got the dud car. I've got the Friday afternoon car. You need to replace it. And they didn't replace it. And they kept it for three weeks and tried to fix it. And this car had endless problems. And they were never nice to me as a first-time buyer. So I decided I will never in my life again buy a VW. So I'm quite interested to hear you saying that it has a reputation for safety and reliability. That yeah, I mean, I think like you said, you you had the one in a million because polos are known for their durability. I mean, the one I drove, for example, we took on a road trip over the Christmas holidays to the Northern Cape, and we ended up on a 150 kilometer gravel road. And <laughs> this little polo, uh, it, it took this road in its stride. You know, it, I mean, obviously the rocky bits you had to traverse at about 20 kilometers an hour because at the end of the day, it's not an SUV, but I was genuinely impressed at this little car at how stable and solid it felt on a gravel road that would be more suited to something like a Toyota Fortuna or a Land Cruiser. But yeah, generally, polos are very reliable. You you hear very few horror stories with, with them with regards to um, mechanical issues, so to speak. You've said in your article on biznews.com that the rival for the VW Polo is the Toyota Starlet, and you've also mentioned the Ford Figo. Which one would you buy, given the choice? Out of the three, I would have to say it would be a tie-up between the the Vivo and the the Starlet. Possibly the Starlet. This car looks a bit boring to me and a bit dated. What do you think about the design? Quite right to say that the design is dated. The Polo Vivo is actually based on the previous model Polo, the previous generation Polo. And it is sold alongside the current Polo as a budget offering. But the one thing that the Polo Viewer does have in its favor is that because of its conservative, rather demure design, it doesn't look out of place or out of date. It hasn't aged badly compared to other vehicles of its time. And if you consider that the, that Vivo shape was first seen in 2009, 2010, I think it still looks reasonably fresh for what it is. So maybe a classic design that isn't offensive. Yeah, it's it's certainly not going to offend anyone or no one's going to look at it and go, it's quite a strange looking car. Uh, it's it's quietly handsome, I will say. And it, it's got a more mature, more sophisticated image than most of the cars in its class, which I think most people like that, that upmarket look. I see you've tactfully described it as an unpretentious car that does what it says on the tin and brilliantly at that. The chin line in particular, it's not, it's not going to blow you over with its list of standard equipment. I mean, you get the basics, air conditioning, uh, power steering, two airbags, and so on, a few safety features. But, I mean, it still has hubcaps. It doesn't have color-coded door handles or mirrors. It's not a very well-spec car. I mean, for if you, if you want something with more comprehensive list of features, you would have to go for the comfort line or the high line derivatives. But the chain line, for what it is, if you're just looking for something to nip about town, perfect for a student, perfect for a first-time buyer, it will offer you everything you'd reasonably expect from a little car. So it will get you from A to B, but it won't set your heart on fire. No, and I think that there is a large market for a car like that, for people that just want to get in, turn the key and go, knowing that they are driving something that's beautifully built and that should last them a lifetime. But you also have to remember that VW has a huge following within South African youth. So a lot of people buy the Polo Vivo and modify them. I just think that VW has such a, a good reputation with, with South Africans that, that they, like you said, it's a very aspirational car, especially for the youth. You basically, you buy into the VW brand with the Polo Vivo in the hopes of one day upgrading and upgrading and upgrading and getting something like a Golf GTI or a Golf R. Grant Patterson joins us now. Cheapest Grant. Last time you were on radio, it was uh, very. You got very famous uh, with with what happened at EdCon, and today you have got a new job. Yes, uh, I've, I've joined Servest as of the beginning of this week, and it's a really exciting opportunity. So uh, you know, back to work. How well do you know Kenton Fine, the uh, who's now your chairman at Servest and the founder of the group? Yeah, strangely, you know, despite having sort of reasonably common parallel careers, but in very different environments, we've never met before. So, I, you know, I started chatting to Kenton and Dennis, his partner, you know, in December. Um, and I've really got to like 
uh, and know them, you know, reasonably well. Big business. Yeah, service. It's certainly it's certainly a, a big business, and it's it's well diversified, um, and it's um, uh, it, it's a, a reasonably complicated business. You know, it's made up of a lot of acquisitions, but very cleverly, I think, has been positioned as a single brand. Um, service offering to its customers, um, and certainly it seems to be, have been very effective to date. Now, you've been around for a long time. Uh, you were also a, an early achiever. If I recall, you took over from Mark Lamberti at MassMart when you were 36 years old, which was then second biggest retailing group in, in the con- on the continent. So when you look back over that period, you must have built quite some experience. Why go back into business now? Or, or maybe a better question is, how are you going to apply all of that, that view from the top that you've been privileged to have over so many years? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. And there's two parts to it. So in, in terms of, you know, why have I decided to go back is, that, is I have been in retail a long time and I've been trying to get into a new industry, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I've just turned 50. I'm too young to retire, and I'm probably too long in the teeth though to to stay in retail. You know, at some point, you know, I think you've got to you've got to step aside and let others have a go. So I've been looking to get out of the industry, and the services industry um, that service finds itself in is uh, an adjacent industry to what I'm used to. You know, it's it's a larger number of employees, deep involvement in the community. Um, and so I feel like I've got enough of my experience that's valid, uh, particularly in transitioning a, um, a, a medium-sized company to a large-sized company and getting over those growing pains. Uh, but there's also enough for me to learn from Kenton and the very competent management team in place that I can, you know, be stimulated and enjoy myself. So, you know, when the opportunity came along, uh, it, it, it was one of the few opportunities I've had a look at that really excited me. Magnus, you were saying earlier that uh, you've known Grant for a long time. Not personally, but watching his career, of course, from, as you're saying, at 36, he was the you know business blue-eyed boy. And from Massmart, he went on to Edcon. And as you say, that, that uh, famous interview, which uh, endeared him to a great many people in South Africa. I think it was on, on, on uh, Bruce Whitfield's show when he shared a bit of heart that, you know, when you're dealing with layoffs, you're dealing with real people, real lives, and it, and it got to him. So, yeah, all kudos to you, Grant. Uh, good luck in your new career. We're gonna, uh, is, is a listing in the, in the offing, or what, what are your plans with service? I, I, I've just arrived, and certainly there's been no discussions of that. Um, you know, the, the, the service has great shareholders. You know, Kenton in his uh, private capital business is still a, a significant shareholder, and you know I, I'm looking to Kenton to show me the ropes in the industry, and teach me a bit, a little bit more about the entrepreneurial world. But it's also got KTH, um, uh, which is a Black Economic Empowerment Trust, and now that's of course in the industry that Servest is in, um, is a very important shareholdership, and I've met and and enjoy all of the management at KTH. So I, I would imagine for the moment the business is is best positioned where it is. What have you learned, Grant? What, have you, what is the biggest thing you've learned? And Magnus was saying earlier on Bruce's show where you, you showed a lot of emotion at that time. Is, is that, did that come a little late in your career or were you always a softie? No, I've, cer- I've certainly always been a softie. Um, you know, I, I don't mind to admit that. Um, I, it is the, the first time in my life in any part of my life that I haven't paid a supplier or paid a debt that was owed. And, I, and you know, apart from, as, as Magnus correctly says, as the reality of, of Edcon's failure coming home, it was also just a, a new experience for me. I've, I've never had to look someone in the face and say, you know what, you're not going to get paid. And, and that call that, 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 um, that um, Bruce played on his show um, was actually me talking to the suppliers um, in, in not, not a private conversation, but certainly not, it wasn't in the media. A lot of people think it was actually on that show, but it wasn't at all. It was me speaking to them and telling them definitively for the first time that they're not going to get paid. Um, and so that was a very emotional thing. In terms of my, my biggest learning, by the way, that I've, I mean, I've obviously, you know, I've worked with some really great leaders. So I've got lots of learnings, but my more recent learning is, is just the respect one needs for debt. 
you know, it's you know, when when the spreadsheet has got everything pointing upwards, you know, and everything's positive, it's hard to imagine a scenario ahead of you where you know you may not be able to pay your debt, and the consequences of that, I, I think, I certainly hadn't understood enough. You know, when one breaches covenants and suddenly banks start, you know, feeling like they need to take control of the business, it's a disaster. I mean, banks will admit to that, and any business that's had that experience or disaster. So I'm going to be much more cautious about debt in in the remainder of my career, and certainly spend more time reading security and covenant documents. Mm. And uh, well, you inherited it; it wasn't something that you created. It, it wasn't, but by the way, you know, I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain I didn't pay enough attention to those things before it come. You know, um, so so you know. I, I, it really, you know, if one if one wants to do a a, a short term course in capitalism, you know, run into a debt problem, you quickly find out what capitalism means. Um, it, it's vicious, it's tough, uh, and and you're held to the letter of every single agreement you've ever signed, uh, and rightly so. You know, you're not you're you're not paying people money back, and I think I, I, certainly I would you know would share with others if they asked is if you're going to finance risky ventures with debt be very 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 careful um i would advise people use equity to you know use debt to finance your historical business but make sure that all future investment is mostly financed by equity it's a uh, it's a much more sensible um and much better for the business by the way you put your own business at risk and your employees at risk if you do that justin as we were talking earlier that was the comme story wasn't it agreed alec but um grant if i can ask you one question what um, what bit of advice would you offer um, youngsters just starting their career? I mean, um, CEO of MassMart at 36, there's a select bunch. I know Michael Yodan was also FMB CEO at 36. Um, I mean, by 50, normally you're just hitting your straps as a businessman, and here you are as um, you, you seem a bit worn out. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say worn out, just a bit more circumspect, you know, as, as one does, uh, as one gets when, when one's a bit older. You're right, though. Um, actually, what I did by uh, being dragged along so early, so I, I was always a bit of a reluctant CEO. I wasn't the careerist chasing the opportunity the whole time. It, you know, some of it was circumstance, some of it was luck, being at the right place at the, at the right time. But what I and I remember uh, people telling me at the time the problem I was going to have, which is what is I going to do when I hit fifty? You know, you. you, you I'm too young to be a, a person with 15 or years um, experience of CEO of a listed large listed company. Um, so you know, it's it's created a challenge. Um, it's a it's a welcome challenge, and it's a great privilege of that that my problem in my life at the moment is what you know what company can I run and what industry should I be in. So I, I feel like the serviced opportunity is 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 me more searching for those early mass smart days again where we were building businesses, buying businesses, integrating, you know, shifting position for for uh, changes in the economy and the markets, um, you know, and, and, and I get that sort of energy again. Um, and I think one needs that. I, 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 I certainly would prefer to be part of a smaller business. So service is not small, but it's a smaller business um, that I can we participate along with management and employees in growing and making successful rather than getting, you know, a big business where you're defending and, you know, massive transformation and massive restructuring and certainly in retail fighting the e-commerce players. I mean, that's going to be the next 10 years in e-commerce, either doing it yourself or fighting the, the new guys. Grant, given so, your experience and your expertise, would you not be better off starting your own business, creating jobs for South Africans, which we so dearly need? Yeah, so in my Private life, by the way. So obviously, I've got a you know a private investment company I started called GPAM, uh, where I have investments, by the way, in startups. I've done startups. Um, I've done um, small stakes in in private equity and gone alongside some of the private equity players. I've done you know um, uh, black economic empowerment startups. So you know I, that's my the private part of my life. I do do that, um, uh, and so and 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 you know I've had some successes and some failures, and it's been a lot of fun. So you know, very much. I'm, I've, I view I'm a professional CEO and an employee um, in my professional life, and I don't pretend to be otherwise. I think you know that's what I've decided to be good at. But I, um, I do do that stuff in my personal capacity. Well, as Magnus said, all the very best of luck with Service, and uh, it's very interesting to notice that you are 
we're going to be working closely with another very precocious talent. Kenton Fine started Servest in his early 20s, listed it on the stock market when he was 29, and has made a massive international success uh, of his business, the South African operation being a big part of it, but uh, the rest of the business, which was merged into an Italian company. And uh, I think it just sounds like you guys are going to have a great fun there. Thank you again, Grant, for on your Don Day One for joining us here on the Business Power Hour. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, as promised, we go off to Plettenberg Bay for the uh, final uh, story in our Power Hour this evening. And warm welcome to Peter Gaylord, who's the chairman of the Plett Ratepayers Association. Before you uh, became involved in in, uh, civic activism, which it is, Peter, what's your background? Uh, I, I spent most of my career in the in the mining industry, um, and then uh, I trained as a chemical engineer and worked, in fact, for 30 years with Impala Platinum, and then uh, spent 10 years at the uh, University of Cape Town in, attached to their Department of Chemical Engineering before finally uh, uh, agreeing with my wife that we really ought to move to Plettenberg Bay because we'd had a house here for many years, and it was a... It was a debate. We, I said to her, you know, we've got two houses, one in Cape Town, one in Plett. It's crazy. She said, well, you don't sell Plett. So that was uh, – <laughs> so we've been living here now about 13 years. And, and got involved in uh, activism, civic activism, because of a very interesting situation. Just unpack what's going on in the town. Well, um, we have a – a, a town administration or management that got some very, very competent and excellent people in it, but also got some people who don't do their jobs, whether through negligence, um, incompetence, uh, one one never knows. And, and we also um, are quite satisfied there's a lot of things happening that um, are irregular and uh, we, we think in some, some instances illegal. And so we... We are trying to really promote sound governance in the town and uh, through the actions of the Ratepayers Association. But it's, it's much more detailed than that. You have a manager uh, who appears, certainly from, from the outside, uh, to have misbehaved rather badly when it comes to the funds that were entrusted to him. What's that story? Well, the... Current municipal manager was municipal manager here um, 10, 11 years ago, and he mishandled the funding of the purchase of a a proposed purchase of a piece of land that the municipality wanted to buy. And it was valued, I think, from memory at uh, 24 million or something like that. And the the province uh, transferred the funds to the municipality, but on the... proviso that they obtain a second valuation and from memory I think the second valuation was something like four million so there was something grossly irregular in that but those funds were mishandled and arising out of that he was dismissed following a disciplinary hearing that was uh, chaired by a retired judge of the uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, Justice Combrink and that would have been the end of it but then um, in 2019, the municipality uh, advertised for a, um, a new municipal manager. He applied for the job and was then appointed. But And such an appointment has to be approved by the MEC for local government in the Western Cape. And he advised them that he did not approve, but the municipality said, well, we, we're, not, we're not going to accept your disapproval. We're going to keep him appointed. So he, the, the MEC took them to court, to the Labour Court, and we, as ratepayers, decided to join it in that case as an amicus curiae, friend of the court, to really protect the interests of our um, our members and make sure that uh, our interests were covered in in the court hearing. The court ruled that uh, the municipal manager's appointment was in fact illegal, totally irregular, and so the municipality took that on appeal to the Labour Appeal Court, and that hearing was heard uh, in September last year. And the judgment on that came out um, in February, late February. And um, 
was emphatically against, it rejected the appointment, said the appointment was, was irregular, illegal, and the, the uh, municipal manager would not be in that. And I should add that at the time he was taken back into employment, the municipality uh, uh, did a special deal with him. They waived his previous dismissal, and in order to settle his previous expenses and the, the um, unhappiness he'd faced, etc., in being dismissed, they, they gave him an upfront payment of a million and a half rand to bring him back into the job. <laughs> and so, yeah, quite. <laughs> so. No, Peter, this is craziness. And, and, and anyway, you, you, you're now taking it to the Constitutional Court. In your, in, well, in your, is this they, the first time it's ever the happened? No, the municipality are taking it to the Constitutional Court. They're applying for leave to appeal, and we have opted to oppose that uh, application for leave to appeal. As I understand the way the Constitutional Court will work in this case, they will hear both the request for leave to appeal and the actual evidence in, uh, that they would want to present as their appeal. And then the Constitutional Court will either rule, say, yes, we accept that you have a case to be heard, or we, 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 they'll throw out the application, reject the application, it won't be taken. So we are trying to stop it at the, uh, um, at the uh, point where it's, they actually apply for leave to appeal, so it doesn't go to the court, because... It's very expensive to go to the Constitutional Court, and we're trying to cut down the expenses incurred by the municipality, which is all based on ratepayers' funds. And ratepayers presumably are funding this, uh, re- well, a- appeal against uh, the, the Concord. How much is it costing? We don't know yet. Our advice is it could be um, several hundred thousand. Um, if, if, we, if we lose the case, we don't know. But we know that um, figures we've seen, this whole legal affair with the, uh, municip- the municipality's conduct uh, conducted in defence of the uh, municipality is somewhere, I think, in excess of a million and a half round already. So, um, What's uh, their case? Why do they want to appoint a guy who, on, from the face of what you've told us, appears to be a crook? We really don't know. They say he's the man for the job, he's equipped for the job, he's done it before. And they're totally ignoring the fact that it's contrary to all regulations and it's contrary to the ruling of the uh, courts and to the objection of the MEC. So we we became party to this, and we want to see it see it through and finished. When and when will that when will that be, Peter? When will uh, it all come to a head? I I don't know. The application is being made to the court. I'm not sure when it will be heard. Sometime, we hope, in a few few months' time later this year, but we don't know. Peter Gaylord, who is the chairman of the Plett Ratepayers Association. I know that there are a heck of a lot of members of the business community who know Plett either through their holidays or maybe second homes or uh, just through through people who who live there. Magnus, you know Plett well. Uh, this This is crazy stuff, man. It's one of the Zoom towns that you were talking about yesterday. Everybody is moving to Plate or those environments because you can, and you can run a business from there. And, uh, I mean, it's just a sad uh, state of affairs that ratepayers have to take the municipalities to court in the face of blatant, blatant, you know, apparent corruption and, 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 and whatever the reason behind it all might be. So, but ratepayers are doing it all around the country. I mean, the Costa ratepayers had to take their municipality to court to, to, to fix up the sewage system. And because that's uh, it's happening all over the country that the municipalities are in a state of, of corruption. But have I been to play lately? No, I uh, haven't cracked a nod yet, but I better go and have a look what's going on there. <laughs> well, when you're next there, you can go and see a, a retired chemical engineer, and I'm sure he'll, he'll uh, pour you a glass of wine. Magnus Haystick, lovely having you on the program. Peter, thanks for joining us tonight. Before we close off, Justin, bring us up to date with the markets. The JSE All Share Index was down to 67,300. The major highlight of the day was process announcement to sell 2% stake in Tencent, disposing of 190 million shares, with the proceeds with the proceeds amounting to approximately 210 billion rand, the same size of South Africa's second largest lender, Standard Bank. Naspers was down 180 rand to 3,480 rand a share, and Process was down 70 rand to 1,600 rand a share on the back of the announcement. The Purple Group, the holding company of Easy Equities, was up 10%, to one rand twelve cents a share, 
on the back of an upbeat trading statement. The company's results are due on Friday. Sunlam was the biggest loser on the top 40 today, slipping 6% to 56 rand a share. Some interesting moves in the currency markets today, with the rand flat against the dollar at 14 rand 52, stronger against the sterling at 20 rand, and weaker against the euro at 17 rand 28. Gold is flat at $1,738 an ounce. Brent crude is trading at $62.20 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 825,000 rand a Bitcoin. Thanks for that update, Justin. Well, we'll be back again with you tomorrow at 5.30. Don't forget you can tune in if you've missed part of the show or you miss one of our shows. How dare you? But if you do, uh, you can get the recording, which is on the Biz News Radio channels on Spotify and iTunes. Look forward to being back in your company, same time, same place, tomorrow from our team here at Biz News. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.